So, the other day, I was reading about how the life expectancy for America went down, putting us in 43rd place. And there are three major contributors. I'll dig into the other two later. But car crashes were a leading contributor. So here's an idea. Let's make it mandatory that we replace airbags with a bag of nails. Now nobody's going over 20 miles an hour. This also brings us to our first sponsor of the show, Bag of Nails. $9.95 a pound. This is Solving Problems and Starting Business. The goal of the show is to be an incubator of great ideas for today's problems. And my job is to simply get that ball rolling. And with your help, hopefully, we'll fine-tune those ideas into something great for everyone. We'll be discussing problems in politics, religion, sports, entertainment, and other things I know nothing about and have no right to speak of. But who's going to stop? And we're going to do all this from a guy-on-the-street perspective. Today we're going to do a little more of an eclectic show. We're going to talk some baseball, poverty, Superman, and we're going to find God real quick in the big topic of the day. All right, let's get right into our new segment called The Quick Fix. This is where we take a small problem and fix it quick. Feel free to hop on our Facebook or Twitter page and you can send us a message if you have a quick fix idea of your own that I can steal. Remember, it's your show. I'm just going to take all the credit. Okay. So as I'm recording this, it's about 10 degrees in the month of April. So what better time than now to talk about baseball? And we're going to talk about a little problem in the major leagues. Last year, during the playoffs, there was a game between the Red Sox and the Dodgers. The Red Sox ended up losing 3-2 in Game 3 of the World Series. As a Red Sox fan, that was bad. But what was worse is the game ended after going 18 innings. That's two baseball games in one. It's a bit much. So how do we fix this? My suggestion would be that the game gets one extra inning. Then, in what would be the 11th inning, it becomes everybody's favorite part of the All-Star break, Home Run Derby. And that's it. So hashtag the shit out of MLB for me, would ya? Thanks. And that is the quick fix. Okay, let's move on to something else. Let's talk about uh, a little bit of Superman, shall we? Let's dip it in some uh, geeky stuff. A couple of months ago, I saw a headline from Vice News that read, Superman shouldn't be white because it never completely made sense to begin with. It caught my attention. I'm not going where you think I'm going with this. The article was written because Henry Cavill, Cavill something like that, who plays Superman in the movies, has decided to no longer play the character, and Warner Brothers has been floating with the idea of having Michael B. Jordan, a black dude, pick up the role. He played Creed in those sort of rocky sequels. And let me say, I didn't read the article, just the headline. But I can pretty much guess where it was going. I'll assume it has something to do with comparing Superman, who is a character trying to find his place in the world, and how that no longer fits the description of a white guy in current society. Something to that effect. But, the character, the thing you have to understand about the character, is at the end of the day, he is a Jewish character. He was created by two Jewish creators. His Kryptonian, Kryptonian name is Kal-El, which is Hebrew, and translates into the voice of God. Or I've also seen it translate to swift God. 
Baby, baby Moses was sent down the Nile in a basket by his mother. Baby Superman was sent in a spaceship by his mother. Moses and Superman were raised in an alien environment where they had to conceal their identities. Even the creators had to hide their names and identities when submitting Superman to publishers due to fear of anti-Semitism. And lastly, Superman is bulletproof because, allegedly, one of the creator's fathers was shot and killed by a robber at his clothing store. I say all this to explain that this particular character is still very much attached to its original creators, no matter how much time has passed. And anyone with any respect who writes or draws or acts this character out should show some respect to the roots of the art. Now, does that mean we can't have a black person play Superman? Of course not. I think everyone should have a positive should have positive role models in their life and in art. Any way to make it more palpable for people is great. But what I don't like is how Hollywood thinks it's doing any sort of service to the African-American community, community by turning a well-known white character black. In fact, I would say it's a disservice, a cash grab, and shows absolutely no sign of creativity. If you produce a movie with a black lead character named Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman, with the same concept we've seen before, and after seeing the movie, a young fan goes to the comic book store, sees a white Superman on, the, on a cover of 80 years worth of comic books, or goes to a toy store only to see a white Superman action figure, or watches the cartoon, you get the idea. So I ask you, do you really think this isn't a disservice, an insult, or a cash grab? Please. This isn't really about saying turning an iconic white character black. It's just the bankruptcy of ideas and the greed that are on display. But this is a show about solving problems. So how do we have a black Superman that's original, badass, and something everyone would want to see? Let's start by using a thing called our imagination, and I'll tell you a short story. Imagine it's the 1940s. A young, 10-year-old, African-American boy, we'll call him Joey after one of the creators, is walking down a busy street in Cleveland. He's wearing a Superman shirt, as he is a big fan, and he goes to the local newsstand where he picks up the latest issue of Action Comics, featuring the Man of Steel. He buys it and proceeds to head home. He is well-known and well-liked in his neighborhood, a good kid. Suddenly, what appears to be a small plane crashes through a nearby building and abruptly lands near the child. While everyone is fleeing, the young, brave boy is close enough to hear someone in pain. Joey wades through the smoke and the debris and sees that it isn't a plane, but a spaceship with an injured alien inside. The young man tries to help, but it's too late. But before the alien dies, he sees goodness in the boy and passes his power on to the child. We'll get deeper on this in the sequel, people. The spaceship explodes, leaving no trace of the alien. Some newspapers and radio shows would report that it's just a plane, though some would believe otherwise. But what people do believe is this superpowered child is trying desperately to save the people in the building that that spaceship tore through. Before he realizes it, he is hovering in the air. With no time to admire his new abilities, he flies over to the burning building and saves the day. Now let's take a second here, because I want to explain something. In the original Superman, baby Superman was sent from a dying planet on a spaceship to Earth and crash-landed on a farm where he was raised by Mom and Pa Kent. In reality, if that happened, how long would it take for the government officials to show up and take that alien baby? There is no way the government just lets something like that slide. Either they show up, bring the alien baby to a lab for dissection, or let's go back to our story. So Joey has just saved the day and brought everyone to safety. Because of his Superman shirt and abilities, take a guess what the neighborhood and the newspapers start calling him. So now, we have a Superman. 
But before he can enjoy his newfound fame, he is escorted by government and military officials. The argument in the press is from one side, whether he should be allowed to live a normal life in his neighborhood, and the other side says there's a fear of letting a walking, talking weapon of mass destruction roam free. For the next 20 years, he is hidden in a government facility where he's tested, and also learns how to hone his abilities. There, they have him learn nothing except the truth, justice, and the American way, never seeing the outside world. Now, 30 years old, most of the country has forgotten about him. Many people believe he was just a hoax to scare other countries. The only people who remember him is his neighborhood. He feels alone and imprisoned. Joey tells the nurse, who has played a role in raising him, that he is concerned that his mom, who visits as much as possible, hasn't been by in weeks. The government was concerned about how he would react, but the nurse tells him his mom has passed away. Enraged and betrayed for not being told, he escapes. Let's break away from here for a second. And remember now, at this point, it's the 1960s. Civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. How would a person feel being betrayed by his government? How would he feel at this point? Then what happens when realizing everything he's been taught over 20 years, truth, justice, and the American way, doesn't really sync up to what's going on in the real world, particularly in the black community? Does he find the righteous path? Does he just go berserk? Does he get involved in Vietnam? Or does he just use his heat vision on Klan members? Is that worth the price of admission? Yeah. I think there is a wealth of ideas to mine from this. And if you're going to make an iconic hero into a black man, then at least do it right. And don't just do it to make a buck. And that's where I'm going to leave it. If you'd like to hear more, tell Warner Brothers to get off their ass and make it. I would gladly settle for an executive producer credit. All right, so when I was thinking about doing a podcast, I was going back and forth on a few ideas. So I stumbled on the idea about talking about problems and trying to come up with ways to uh, solve them. When I told a few people about this idea, someone sarcastically said, okay, solve poverty. So this segment is called Ending Poverty in America Part 1 because someone listening thinks I can't come up with a solution, you prick. So there's three ways to look at this. First, there's extreme poverty or homelessness. Second, there are people working in, in the poverty class, or the working poor, or the broke-ass people, as they sometimes are referred to. I believe that's around $12,000 annually. And the third group, which is the one we are going to focus on, is young people about to enter the workforce. So, for any young person out there about to enter the workforce, or parents who want to make sure their kids have a healthy path to the middle class, there are three things you need to do. Only three. Number one. Get a high school diploma. Number two, get and maintain any job. And the last one, do not have kids until you are married, or I've also heard, do not have kids until you are over the age of 20. And that's it. Just those three things, and you will never be poor. This research was put out by the Brookings Institute. They basically took the census and IRS data, and these are the results they found. So now that we have some fundamental truths, we can move on to figure out what we can do for people who are currently in the poverty class, and also why it may be difficult for someone in a rural county to simply get a job, or if you're getting the shit kicked out of you daily at school, it may be a problem getting that high school diploma, or if a dad decides to run off, never to return, it may hurt a newly single mom's finances. And that is Solving Poverty in America, Part 1. We'll get to part two, three, and four 
if and when the series continues. Now, let's go find God. It's our big topic of the day, and I've been searching for this cat for a very long time. First, we have to define God. The God I'm looking for is not so much of the religious variety, but of an intelligent designer, a creator of all this. So, let's start at the beginning. My beginning. I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to second grade. This is where I learned about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And I really liked it, and I liked the way it was taught to me. The imagery was powerful. But as time passed, I questioned the idea of an all-powerful, all-knowing God would allow bad things to happen, among pl and among plenty of other questions. I became skeptical. Not long after, I would learn about the Big Bang Theory. And I had a question about this, too. The theory was explained to me like this. In the beginning, there was nothing. Then a great explosion created the universe. And right there, I'm saying, well, if there was nothing, what the hell exploded? When I was 10 years old, on Memorial Day, I remember this like it was yesterday. My dad and me were picking up flowers to drop off to various grave sites of, uh, you know, like past relatives. I asked my father, what happens when you die? Now, you have to understand, at this age, any answer he gave me, I would believe it and never question it. So what, what he was about to say was a major statement. So he says, you know when you sleep and you can't remember your dreams? It's like that, but forever. And I remember being just blown away. No mention of heaven, an afterlife, God, nothing. Just darkness. But at least I had my answer. About two minutes later, we pull up to the first gravesite. We walk up to the tombstone. My father crouches down folds his hands together, says a quick silent prayer, and afterwards gives the sign of the cross, and we're off to the next site. Needless to say, I still had questions. Should I act as if God exists, just in case? That's pretty much where my mindset stayed for a while. I kept an open mind, open mind to anything, though. At some point in my late teens, I was taught that the human body internally produces enough energy that could light a small light bulb, and energy doesn't die. In the Bible, Isaiah 57.15 speaks about how God exists outside of time and space. He is not a person living in the clouds. That's what they teach young kids because it's tough to expect a five-year-old to understand that there's a cosmic entity that exists outside of time and space. So, is God just energy? An energy or a cosmic entity that started the beginning, started time? Do, do we rejoin that energy when we die? How could a being that exists outside our physical concepts be found? The only thing I heard that exists outside of time and space that's reasonably understandable is numbers. The idea has been argued about for thousands of years, but we're going to go with this. So, if we're going to find God, it's going to be through the numbers. Let's go, let's go back to the Big Bang Theory. In the early 20th century, Edwin Hubble discovered the universe is expanding and calculated that matter time, and space had a beginning, as told in the book of Genesis. Now, prior to this, most scientists, including Albert Einstein, believed the universe had simply always existed. Einstein actually fought against the notion of an expanding universe until the evidence became too overwhelming. So, it left the science community in a major conundrum. What started time? Most cosmetologists who study the universe believe a chance cosmic explosion, just like any other explosion, could never have developed the complexity needed to start life. For life to exist, gravity and other laws of physics 
would need to be intricately designed and fine-tuned just right in order for the universe to exist. When the Great Explosion took place, if it were slightly weaker, gravity would have pulled itself right back to where it started. And by slightly weaker, I mean the expansion rate would have to be a millionth of a second weaker. Then the universe would have collapsed on itself, and that's from Stephen Hawking's, by the way, and hopefully I'm doing it justice. If that same number were applied, but to a faster expansion rate, the stars and the planets would not be able to form. Everything that happened for Earth to exist, including having atmosphere, oxygen, water, defies the laws of any sort of probability. I've seen a few variations of the chances of our existence, and the number I see the most for us to exist is a chance in one trillion, 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 or for short, a miracle. We may be getting closer to finding God. Inside our bodies, there are 100 trillion cells, and inside those cells are DNA. Within the DNA, there's an encoded chemical alphabet that spells out the assembly instructions for thousands of different proteins for which we are constructed. DNA is so efficient at storing energy that if you could take a piece the size of a pin needle, it could store enough information the equivalence of a stack of textbooks that could circle the Earth 5,000 times. And... No two humans are genetically identical. Francis Crick, a Nobel Prize winner who co-authored the academic paper proposing the structure of DNA, said that natural selection could never produce the first molecule of DNA. So how does DNA help us find God? DNA produces and stores information and instructions. Nature cannot. If you were to see a stop sign or a sign with information, you would assume someone with intelligence created it. So would it be okay to assume the information that is written on our DNA was created by something? So, I say all this because I want to get to something important. And there's no way we're going to find God, so at this point you can get that out of your head. I read a study a couple of months back. It was about how the life expectancy in America has gone down. So I looked into why. And one of the leading factors is suicide. It's on the rise, and what's even sadder is that youth su suicides, and I'm talking about 8 to 12 year olds, are on the rise. So I dug a little deeper, and it seems to all point to one thing when you break it down, a lack of purpose and meaning, which more than likely lends itself to a lack of community and family, which, if you don't have, is incredibly tough to find and create. I've talked about the importance of relationships in episode one when we talk about personal hierarchy. When that feeling of hopelessness comes your way, it's nice to have a hand now and again, whether it's God, family, or community, to bring you up. So I simply asked this, should we focus as a society on giving children a chance to be part of a community, the option to be involved in something bigger than themselves? Should we at least try to fill our kids' souls with spirituality and let them know about the energy that's inside them, teach them how to turn that energy into something positive against the negative? Let these young minds understand there's a uniqueness inscribed in every cell in their body? Or... Do we continue letting people believe that they are nothing more than bags of bones with no real purpose, floating on a dirty rock in outer space, all by random chance? And yes, I'm aware the question is pretty biased. Okay, that's it for this one. Like the Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, send the hate tweets, hit the subscribe button. It's very important to do so, it would make my life a lot easier. 
If I do research for the show, it definitely helps my chances of people returning calls, emails for information I can't find. Even a small base of people listening can help. I can always lie and say I have more uh, listeners than I do, and I probably shouldn't have said that while I was recording. Anyway, come back for the final pilot episode. We're going to talk about the laws of dating and relationships. We're going to talk about the millennial generation, those whiny little pricks. Don't worry, I'm a millennial too. Stop crying. And lastly, we're going to solve immigration, because I think the government sucks at everything, and I know way more. Final note, I know the last segment is going to tick off the atheist, so to you, I say, enjoy the clip at the end of the show. Thank you for your time. Now, as to the larger issue of God's existence, to be an atheist is to believe that everything came from nothing. Since I cannot prove God, and he cannot disprove God, and he cannot prove how anything came about, we now enter the world of only common sense and likelihood. On the, on the issue of common sense and likelihood, I simply ask you if you believe that it is more likely that everything, and I mean everything, came about on its own. That is what Christopher Hitchens and all atheists believe. It all came about on its own. But nothing physical comes from nothing. Nothing does. So it is a leap of faith that absolutely dwarfs my leap of faith, and I acknowledge it's a leap of faith that there is a good God who governs the universe. I fully do. I accept Rabbi Milton Steinberg's great, great statement which I will offer as a, uh, in, in just a nutshell form. I will paraphrase. The believer in God has to account for one thing, the existence of unjust suffering. The atheist, however, has to account for the, exist the existence of everything else. That is so powerful to me as to be inherently persuasive. I fully acknowledge the weakness in the religious belief. I fully acknowledge it. That if I believe there is a God, I have to somehow deal with children with cancer and, and tsunamis and so on. I fully, and every religious person acknowledges that difficulty, or every thinking religious person. But the atheist has to account for everything else. We went from nothing to Bach is, is a belief that he has. That's rational. We're, we're the ones who make strange, irrational leaps of faith, not the atheist. Yes, we went from absolutely nothing, or even for that matter, from a rock to Beethoven's Ninth on its own. Okay, if you believe that, I conclude, then you are absolutely prepared to believe anything.